You are listening to 3CR. Evan Wallace is my name. It is an absolute pleasure to have your company this morning. On 3CR Breakfast, we've been profiling key electorates that will make a huge impact in terms of swaying the outcome of this year's federal election. A few years, not a few years, my goodness, it feels like a few years sometimes, especially with everything that's happening right now in the world. But a few weeks ago, we heard from some voters based in the seat of Chisholm. That's in Melbourne's eastern, southeastern suburbs, 20 to 30 minutes by train on the Glen Waverley line. At the start of the year, I took the train out to the end of the line to Glen Waverley Station and went to the Glen Shopping Centre where I spoke with a number of individuals who were there on a sunny late January afternoon day, but their hopes for the year, a bit about Glen Waverley itself and also what issues they wanted to see addressed at this year's federal election. First of all, we'll start with Jet. Jet is a lovely dude and here's his take on everything that he'd like to see in 2022, including his hopes for the 2022 election. First question for you, Jet. It's a question about the area that we're in at the moment. How would you describe Glen Waverley to someone who'd never heard of it before? There's people listening into the show from all over Australia. How would you describe it? Um, I think it's a pretty multicultural place. Um, lots of good food. Mm, and a lot of uh, good shops around here. Nice one. What are your, some of your favourite things about it? Um, I think Asian food here is probably one of the best in... Um, I'd say southeast uh, Melbourne. Nice, nice. It's a big claim, but it sounds like a pretty one that a lot of people would agree with too. Um, we're at the start of 2022. Do you have any goals or actions, resolutions for this year? Um, yeah, this year um, definitely we'd like to see some uh, movement coming out from you know this uh, whole pandemic stuff, and uh, hopefully we can put that behind us. It's been a really challenging, tough scary time for people all around the world and in Australia and in Melbourne in particular. How have the last couple of years been for you, Jet? Uh, it's been okay. Um, we've just had a newborn baby, so, you know, things have been uh, not too impactful because, uh, you know, we're mostly at home taking care of the baby. Um, yeah, so we are pretty sheltered from uh, you know, all of the effects so far. It's nice just being able to take it, take it easily, take it calmly. Um, this year is a federal election year. Are there any big issues or topics that you'd like to see be debated at the federal election? Uh, that's a very good question. Um, personally, I think uh, things around um, you know the, um, the corruption issues are w- one of the, the things that are a little bit concerning, and also probably around the uh, you know maybe a framework around the sort of pandemic powers know what they can do and you know like what they do need people's consent and yeah I think we need to draw a line there somehow. Would you say that that's the most important issue for you corruption? Uh, I suppose so yes because if we don't have a uh, sort of a clean government then you know like we can't trust that the decisions that they make are actually in you know the uh, the people's sort of uh, best interests. It could be for like you know personal motivation rather than for the people. And finally, you're feeling optimistic or pessimistic about the year ahead? Optimistic for sure. Yeah. Why is that? Um, I think 2022 is just a nice looking number, so it should be good. <laughs> I like that. You're keeping it simple. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me, Jet. Thank you. You have a nice day. Cool. Thank you. Okay.
That was Jet. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast. So you can hear there Jet very concerned about the role of corruption in politics. It's something that I found was a major issue as I was there in suburbs such as Mount Waverley and also Blackburn too. A lot of people talking to me about their desire to see a federal anti-corruption commission. That being a very, very key thing on people's minds in the seat of Chisholm. In the media at the start of this year, we've seen the federal government try to tie and pin down the Labor Party as being too close to China. In Glen Waverley, it's one of the most significant Chinese-speaking communities in Victoria and specifically in Melbourne. Someone who was reflecting on those connections and that relationship was Lawrence. Lawrence is a retired businessman and really has an interesting perspective as to what he'd like to see addressed and what he'd like to see, just generally speaking, in 2022. This is Lawrence. You're on 3CR Breakfast. We're at 7.21am. That's pretty good. Um, first question, just a general one. How would you describe Glen Waverley as a place? I think it's got everything. It's got cinema, school, shopping centres, great, and railway station. Yeah. What is it that you like about the area? I think it's uh, clean and safe. Yeah. Lovely. We're at the start of the year, and it's a time of the year when people are planning, they're putting in goals, hopes, resolutions. Do you have any big goals for 2022? I'm retired, so I don't really have a lot of uh, have-to-do things. Um, yeah, just be healthy and be happy. That's a great philosophy. One question that we're asking people too to reflect on, how have the last couple of years been for you? It's been a challenging time in Australia and in, in Melbourne particularly. How's the pandemic been for you? I think the pandemic changed the landscape in a lot of uh, places uh, like business. I was in business and I'm really sorry to see so many shops are closed, especially shopping centres. Um, a lot of people are at work, uh, that's another sort of not a happy occasion. Hopefully the pandemic uh, go past and everything back to normal. Yeah. That sounds pretty good to me. Um, it's a federal election year in Australia this year. Are there any topics or issues that you'd like to see debated? Politics is a hard one. Uh, everybody had different ideas and opinions. Uh, I just hope uh, not so many international uh, conflicts, uh, especially the um, US-China relationship because I'm Chinese and really uh, sorry to see the uh, situation deteriorate, keep on deteriorating because of the election, because of the US election. So the Americans have to do something to uh, look like the president doing something and China is the punch bag, unfortunately. And finally, are you feeling optimistic or pessimistic about what lies ahead in 2022? That's a hard one. Uh, I'm a pessimist. No, I mean, really, it's the other way. I, I like to, uh, to be an optimist, but uh, seeing everything happening is a little bit pessimistic. Yep. Thanks so much for chatting with me. You're welcome. Yeah. Hope everything turns out okay. Yeah. That was Lawrence. It's 3CR Breakfast. I'm Evan Wallace. It's 7.24 a.m. Lawrence really hoping that the 
debate around the nature of Australia and US relationships with China um, eases somewhat uh, and that there can be a level of cooperation between the two countries. Something which, uh, yeah, definitely was not how the election and how the political debate within Australia was being framed at the start of the year and now added with an extra level of complexity as the war in Ukraine plays itself out and China um, positions itself in a supporting role of Russia's efforts and endeavours, even if it's somewhat, well, at least in terms of the, the language that's being used at an international level, perhaps not the action so much, somewhat subtle. It's 7.25 on the show, 3CR Breakfast. We've got a few great interviews that are going to be coming up after our next song. So after this piece by Liz Stringer, Little Fears, Little Love, you're going to be hearing from Taimur Sahail looking at changes to the fresh water cycle. After that, we very much turn our concentration to the situation in Ukraine, talking with Matthew Sussex, and then after that, Mark Kenny. It is a real pleasure to have your company on the show today, and I just want to make sure that people are going well out there, that people are enjoying the start of their week. Here's a song, though, that... um, yeah, here's a song that captures a bit of, well, captures a bit of whimsy, captures a bit of hope. There's a few environmental references in there. She has a beautiful voice, and we like good music on 3CR Breakfast. This is Little Fears, Little Loves by Liz Stringer. Enjoy. Town. Kicking up dust with my restless feet. What a time to think, even more time to drink. As I watch the autumn do out with the heat. Little fears, little loves. It's never.
was alone I never felt better though I was hoping the conversation wouldn't end Like a bird from above You swept me up And we hung on the thermals Wings outstretched Of stability. 3CR Community Radio giving the voice to community since 1976. As global warming continues to damage the planet, we know that weather conditions will become more extreme. Dry climates are becoming even drier and there's more flooding in places prone to heavier rainfall, with current flooding in northern New South Wales and southern Queensland an awful example. But how quickly is this change likely to happen? And what does this mean for all the fresh water in the world? On the line is Tamur Sohail, a postdoctoral research associate in the School of Mathematics and Statistics. He's from the University of Sydney, but based here in Melbourne to explain some concerning new research on the world's water cycles. Good morning, Tamur. Good morning, Evan. Nice to be here. Oh, great to uh, interview you and really happy that you're there on the line. Tomo, you've written in an article on the conversation that access to fresh water is not guaranteed. I'd like to come to that in a moment, but before we get too far into the interview, when we're talking about our fresh water cycle, what exactly are we referring to here? Yeah, so I guess we all learn hopefully, about the water cycle in school. I think it's part of the Australian curriculum. Um, and the water cycle is basically the transport of the fresh drinking water that we all need to survive um, through the various spheres of the climate. So that includes the atmosphere, the oceans, and the land. So the transport of fresh water in the atmosphere happens through clouds and through the air, through humidity. Uh, in, on land, you have transport of fresh water through rivers, lakes, and groundwater. And even in the ocean, you have transport of fresh water through the ocean circulation and currents. And what the water cycle is, is basically this endless and continuous cycling of water through all of the different spheres of the climate. 
And we really rely on this water cycle so that we have water coming out of our tap or full rivers so that we can navigate and uh, take shipping, uh, create shipping lanes into inland cities. Um, and so it's a very important part of our society. Thanks for that fantastic explanation. So thinking about the fresh water cycle, what do we know about how it has already changed? Yeah, um, a lot of people consider the water cycle to be some sort of continuous endless cycle that will stay the same in perpetuity. And that's, I think, in part because that's how we're taught about the water cycle. It just is a cycle that exists. But actually, scientists have been tracking for quite a number of years now changes to the water cycle because of uh, climate change, because of human-induced climate change. What they found is that the water cycle is getting stronger. What that basically means is areas where there's already a lot of rainfall are getting even wetter and dry areas in the world are getting a lot drier. And we've been able to see this pattern bear out in historical observations of rainfall. If you look at the Bureau's rain gauges or um, evaporation pans, which is what you kind of use to, to um, track evaporation, you can see this pattern bearing out globally. What we don't know as much is how much that water cycle is actually strengthening over time. So there's a bit of unpredictability there, but in research that you and your colleagues have done into fresh water cycles and published recently in Nature, you found that there's been an intensification of the water cycle by up to 7%. What exactly does that mean? Yeah, well, one of the big headlines of this work uh, that I really want to try and get across is obviously 7% in isolation doesn't mean much, but it's actually quite an alarming number because in the past uh, estimates of how much the water cycle is intensifying have hovered around 2 to 4%. And, and this new method that we applied to ocean observations, um, which I can talk about if you're interested about it, but this method that we apply to ocean observations shows almost a double increase of what we previously expected. What that means in real life is that on average, wet parts of the world are going to get about twice as wet as we previously anticipated, and dry parts are going to get twice as dry, basically get half the rainfall, you could say net rainfall, than we previously uh, were anticipating. And this is over the historical period from 1970 to 2014. So over 44 years, we've observed this um, change in the water cycle that is double what we were actually previously thought it was. And so that that is quite an alarming result there. It is really alarming. And I'm keen to understand a bit more about those implications. But I also would like to know about how you came to this conclusion. So you talked about a new method that you employed to be able to mm. come to this conclusion. Talk me to, through some of this work that you've done on ocean observation and analysis and, and, and why this is a, a really important way of, of better understanding the freshwater cycle. Yeah, this is something that I'm really excited about because I think when I tell people, it really clicks for them. Uh, the innovative way scientists are trying to understand the water cycle. So normally people think of the water cycle or rainfall and evaporation as something you measure on the ground using uh, rain gauges, like I was saying, or evaporation pans. But actually, one way to do it, which is arguably more accurate, is to actually track how these changes are happening over the ocean. So we know the ocean is 70% of the surface area of our globe. 
So a lot of the rainfall and evaporation actually occurs over the ocean. The problem is we don't have rain gauges or evaporation pans in that part of the world to really be able to gauge how much the water cycle is changing there. But a cool trick that we use is we actually measure how salty the ocean is and how that saltiness is changing over time. If you take a, a, a bowl of salty water and you pour in a cup of drinking fresh water, which isn't salty, then that bowl becomes less salty, right? And if you take that same bowl of water outside in the sun and let all that water evaporate off, what's left will be a much saltier mixture of water. And that's exactly what's happening in the ocean. You've got the ocean getting saltier in places where there's evaporation, and you've got the ocean getting less salty in places where there's a lot of rain falling on the ocean. And so we can actually track how salty the ocean is and how that's changing to try and understand how the water cycle is changing. And that's the method that we used in this study. That is really fascinating and, and equally really concerning. How does that yeah. work from a, a practical perspective, actually collecting the different uh, samples of water from the ocean? Tell me about the overall research process that worked with engaging with um, maybe it was colleagues or other institutions to get those samples. How did that all, all play out in terms of really having confidence in what you were collecting and, and doing that um, um, yeah, that, that robust analysis that's, that's led to such a significant conclusion. Yeah, that's a great question. And uh, a lot of people will have heard the saying that the ocean is one of the most unknown places on our planet. Uh, and that, that really is true. It, it is a mammoth effort to try and get these types of measurements, uh, not just because we, we don't just need those measurements over at the entire globe, but to really get a constraint on how climate change is changing things, we need those measurements from 1970 all the way to present day. And that's a huge task. And so basically what happens is we, as oceanographers, use a number of different techniques. The first is that we have ships go out and basically take uh, salinity measurements as they're going. That can actually include the cruise ships that you go on holiday on. We sometimes fit those with salinity measurements as well. Um, the other thing we have is something um, more autonomous. We have autonomous uh, profilers called Argo floats, which we just dump into the ocean. And for a number of years, they just constantly take salinity readings and send it up to a satellite for uh, kind of uh, uh, to, to assess and then quality control and put into a, a data set. And so this huge effort of thousands of floats and hundreds of ships every year is creating a, a single data set that scientists like me who are sitting in front of our computer can download and analyze to come to this uh, conclusion. But there's actually a lot more that we need to do. There is a lot of uncertainty in these data sets. And that's part of the reason why we're constantly revising these estimates of how uh, much the water cycle is changing. As you were going through this data and crunching the numbers and you were seeing that there had been an intensification of, of up to 7%, how did that make you feel? That w would have been quite shocking, I can imagine. <laughs> I was just talking to my co-author about this yesterday, actually, because we were both thinking about how when we're in the nitty gritty of our science, we don't actually consider the implications. But then when we sit down and look at our finished piece, and especially when we talk to people like you, that's when we actually sit back and say, oh, hey, this is actually kind of alarming. So. I guess in the day to day, I didn't, I didn't really, it didn't click because I was doing, you know, nitty gritty coding and plotting and writing. But 
once I sat down and really looked at the, the bulk of our results, um, I, I was alarmed, but I was also happy that this is something that the scientific process is able to uncover, uh, hopefully in time for policymakers and others to respond to. Yeah, I hope so too. I think every bit of robust empirical scientific information should just be that extra uh, level of urgency that, that's needed for for mm. more action. You mentioned that there was a sense of the implications being alarming. What is specifically alarming for you? I think we have seen in the news and uh, over the, especially over the past few years, the impacts of the changing water cycle on our local environment. Um, you know, you mentioned the the floods in New South Wales and Queensland. Uh, we had floods in uh, New South Wales uh, last year, and so um, it's it, this is a change that's happening all over the world. And what's alarming for me, I guess, is that the seven percent or that doubling that I'm talking about has already been baked in. This is a historical study that I'm talking about up to 2014. So I just, I guess I really hope that policymakers, um, especially local governments and fe federal governments are looking at these results and uh, adapting to what, what they're seeing in these results. Uh, one of the things that I think often happens is the IPCC lands a really big report once every seven years, people take notice and potentially you have policy changes in response. But this science is happening constantly. Uh, this study that I, that was just published in Nature uh, probably will make it to the next IPCC report, uh, hopefully bolstered by other studies. Um, but what's important is that policymakers should be more flexible and adaptable to the scientific research as it's coming out, rather than waiting for a, a new report to drop every seven years and then impulsively making a decision based on that report. So flexibility and adaptability being really yeah. important for you. Bigger picture, what action would you like to see here in Australia specifically um, uh, the federal government take on climate change to address this really concerning situation? Yeah. Um, this is obviously me now kind of stepping out of the climate scientists and the science and talking about policy. So I should say I'm not an expert in policy and how how these mitigation and adaptation measures should be taken. But from a climate science perspective, there is a very, very clear link between CO2 emissions, warming uh, global temperatures, and then warming global temperatures leading to an intensification of the water cycle. And so it's it's very clear to me, I mean, you can read the reports, you can look at the scientific consensus, but it's very clear that, that all of this can be traced back to excess greenhouse gas emissions because of humans. And so really what I would like to see uh, as an individual, as an Australian, uh, is to see more action done in trying to reduce our carbon emissions as soon as possible, not 2050, not 2030, I mean, as soon as possible. Um, and, and the alarm that I'm sounding is a historical one. This is from 1970 to 2014. So when I say as soon as possible, I mean as soon as possible. That makes a lot of sense. And yeah. just finally, for all the listeners out there, what would you like them to take away uh, as the major point from this really important new research that you've published? What's the major takeaway that you'd like them to have for the rest of the day as they start the day, going off to work, going off to school, to uni, or doing whatever yeah. they need to do? Yeah. What would you like them to know? 
Yeah. Well, first thing is don't panic. This is not the end of the world. Often uh, these reports and these broadcasts about things being worse than we expected can just lead to a paralyzing sense of panic. I think the biggest is uh, just remember that what we're doing collectively as a as a country, but also globally, is not enough to try and mitigate the impacts that I'm talking about. And we all just need to work more at a personal level, but also at a governmental level to try and mitigate these impacts as much as possible. But don't panic. <laughs> don't panic, but let's yeah. make sure that we're working on a much better solution and response. Time also, yes. Hale, thank you so much for your time this morning. It's been a really informative discussion and really appreciate the research that you've done. Thank you, Evan. Time also, Hale, this is 3CR Monday Breakfast. Great to have your company. I'll post a link to Time Wars article that he wrote on the conversation on our 3CR Monday Breakfast page. Really excellent to have you here this morning. And yeah, hope that your morning, your Monday morning is going along well, whether it's off to work, off to uni, off to school, or all sorts of things that might be happening around home. Uh, it's uh, always uh, always a tricky day Monday for a lot of people, so wishing you all the best. Well, it seems like a different planet when we're asking the question, will Russia invade Ukraine? We've all been devastated and depressed by the scenes of destruction, despair and depression that have followed Russia's invasion. There are two questions that I've been reflecting on. What's ahead and what's the end point? I'm very grateful to have Matt Sussex on the show this morning to unpack some of these questions. He's written extensively on Russia at an international level. He's a senior fellow at the Centre for Defence Studies with the Australian Defence College and an adjunct associate professor at the Griffith Asia Institute. Hey, Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Matt, we're live on air Monday 7th of March. It's coming up to 11pm on Sunday in Ukraine, I believe. Start with a, a big general question. What's your reading of the current status of Russia's attack, the uh, situation on the ground in Ukraine as we go live to air right now? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, the Russian invasion of uh, Ukraine was intended to go far differently from the way it actually has gone. Uh, it was intended to seize Kiev, uh, Kharkov, uh, the Black Sea Peninsula within about three days. And, and that hasn't happened. The Russians have got exceptionally bogged down. Uh, and it means that they've had to turn to, you know, it's a thing in their playbooks that they kind of do best. And that is, you know, using artillery against cities, laying siege to them and, uh, and try and capture uh, enemy forces. That's what they're attempting to do now. Um, the Russian, uh, you know, movement into Ukraine is, is is very much slowed. That said, however, it's kind of cold comfort for those people who are living in those cities and trying to evacuate and facing an uncertain future, going west uh, to cities like Lvov and then uh, and then on to places like Poland as well. Um, so, having created this mess, uh, Vladimir Putin seems to uh, not be able to even prosecute this uh, this war properly. 
It is really scary seeing scenes unfold. And I know a lot of listeners have provided feedback about how challenging the the last number of, of weeks have been for them. And sitting here from a distance in Australia, it all feels so surreal that um, part of the world, which a lot of individuals in, in and around Melbourne, it's where we broadcast from, have strong connections to. Seeing this unfold, it, it all feels um yeah, far more real and, and palpable compared to other conflicts and other invasions that happen across the world, but perhaps don't receive that same level of, of coverage and don't necessarily have that same level of connection. And I think there's a sense of people really trying to, to cling for, for signs of hope. And you mentioned that um, the Russian invasion hasn't gone to plan in the way that Putin would have intended. What prospects do you think Ukrainian forces have of further deterring the assault? What, what sort of um, signs of hope do you see? Um, well, Russia has, has committed about 90% of the forces that it had um, on the Ukrainian border and also in Belarus to the conflict so far. So it's basically thrown all it's, uh, all it's had at it. Uh, there are calls for uh, Belarus, Belarusian forces to get involved by the Kremlin. Uh, other countries like Kazakhstan have said no. Uh, there's call-ups of more troops from places like Chechnya. So uh, Russia is mobilising more, and it certainly does have more resources it can throw into this fight should it want. Um, the, the sort of strategist in me says that, look, it is still probably likely that Russia will win, uh, but it will, will win at a, a really kind of terrible cost. Um, and, uh, and in taking big cities in the east, in the north, uh, then... Ultimately, what Putin has done is, is guaranteed himself a, uh, a really, really, really nasty insurgency, resistance movement uh, that will be armed by certainly the West. Um, and uh, that will, will go on as long as Russian troops remain in Ukraine. Um, so uh, some kind of political solution will probably have to come about at some stage. Uh, but I think we're a very, very, very long way away from that, simply because there are no real off-ramps for Putin. There are no real deals that would satisfy Zelensky in uh, Ukraine. Uh, and, and there's no real, uh, real off-ramp either, I think, to the West, uh, given that it's taken a, uh, you know, a cautious but nonetheless still firm approach to, to Russia. You talk about the role of the West, and we've seen a collective effort across Europe uh, and also looking at efforts from the US to provide military aid, so whether that's arms or whether that's um, planes, uh, whether that's ammunition. Uh, what difference do you think this is likely to have? Um, look, the, uh, the, the ammunition is, is likely to make a significant difference uh, because the Ukrainians are churning through anti-tank missiles and, uh, and small arms um, uh, ammunition at a, at a big clip. Um, so at the local level, that's going to make a difference in terms of their ability to resist and to fight. Um, at the bigger level, of course, it's the, the sanctions that are hoped to, to have a, an effect on you know, the Russian government, not directly to Vladimir Putin, but indirectly through those people who live in Russia, uh, as well as in particular the, the small selectorate that uh, revolves around him, both those who are the oligarchs, who have little political power but lots of money, uh, and those who are the sort of muscle men, and they're usually men, um, those who uh, uh, you know have political clout. Um, 
you know, the fact that MasterCard and Visa has stopped all operations, that you can't have Apple Pay, that you can't go to IKEA, uh, that there are export controls on Russian uh, aerospace tech sector, uh, that many, many banks are now sanctioned. It's, it's going to be almost impossible to get money into or out of Russia. Um, and ultimately, these are, these things, I, I think, you know, these, these are the broadest, uh, hardest-hitting sanctions I think we've ever seen. Uh, ultimately, they will have an impact, but whether it is soon enough for the people of Ukraine, I'm not sure. How likely or how soon do you think it would be until further Western nations, I know Canada has already implemented a, a ban on Russian oil, but do you think that's the next step in the round of economic sanctions likely to be applied against Russia? Uh, oil is an interesting one. There, there are some uh, already, um, you know, oil tankers, Russian, Russian uh, oil tankers in Europe, where uh, people in the wharf have refused to offload it, and uh, then the government backed them up and said, "No, we're not going to to take Russian oil." Um, it is possible that it will go there. Um, it is possible, probably, also that there might be limited. Um, Sanctions on Russian gas, very limited, given the extent to which uh, other nations in Europe depend on it. Uh, in the end, of course, this is going to mean that Moscow pivots much more towards Beijing. Um, there is absolutely no um, future, it seems, for uh, a Russia-West relationship for the foreseeable future, that that relationship is going to be, be uh, dictated by conflict and dictated by competition. So it does mean that I think, you know, Putin has basically uh, decided for Russia that, you know, it's not a Eurasian power. It's going to be a, uh, a country that tilts ever, ever closer to, to the PRC. And do you think that is really um, underpinning a lot of the assumptions that are being made by Putin? Just recently you wrote on The Conversation that Vladimir Putin's approach resembled more a Russian ultranationalist with a shaky grasp of history than a master strategist. So is that your sense that you know being prepared to have a country's economy absolutely crippled, isolated from the Western world, that uh, with China as, a, as an avenue for further market opportunities and um, I suppose positioning itself in a, in a different sphere of influence, that that's the great rationalisation for going down this path? Well, it's interesting, isn't it? It's always the case that the war you get isn't the one that you anticipate. Uh, and I think for Putin, uh, he thought he was going to get something very, very different. Uh, he thought he was going to uh, take over, effectively force the Ukrainian government to capitulate within three or four days, um, uh, You know, have regime change in Kiev, uh, declare independent uh, states and neutrality uh, around Ukraine. And the West would have collectively shrugged it would have imposed some sort of tokenistic sanctions, uh, but that would have been it. Um, and Putin would have been able to sell this as an enormous victory back home. Now, of course, because his invasion has become so bogged down, because the Ukrainians are fighting you know, with such spirit, and because the West has uh, you know, really united with, with this massive great big sanctions package, uh, none of those three, three things are what Putin anticipated, I think. So um, he's left with, I think, a rather unpalatable you know, option. Uh, and uh, well, you know, one option is to uh, to, to give up uh, and uh, sue for peace and, and then declare a, a massive victory. Uh, the other option is to come to come some kind of you know negotiated settlement, which is probably where it'll end up. Uh, or alternatively, you know, to to ramp up. 
the um, uh, not just the rhetoric, but uh, but also the hostility towards NATO, and uh, it seems to be that's partially where he's going at the moment, because he needs to test out all those scenarios before he actually, you know, comes to the understanding that this is a conflict he most likely you know, won't win, but he might extract some strategic benefits from. And having done that, of course, he will turn himself into a complete pariah in the eyes of NATO countries, EU countries. Um, and, uh, and his only friend left will be Beijing, who themselves are, are not particularly happy with him. This is 3CR Monday Breakfast, where we're speaking with Matt Sussex from ANU and Griffith on the situation in Ukraine. Matt, this must feel like a very long time ago, but seven years ago in an article for The Interpreter, looking at whether the West should arm Ukraine, you wrote that Putin, and I quote, merely wants Ukraine as a weakened buffer state and has few ambitions to Russia's West. In the same article, you said that Russia was unlikely to take on any Baltic country and was keen to avoid conflict with NATO. Do you still see the situation in a similar light? Well, I mean, seven years ago, that's exactly what Putin did want. Uh, you know, he wanted a, a weakened Ukraine and make uh, rump Ukraine wet the West's fault. Um, and uh, Crimea was, was what he wanted for access to the Black Sea. Now, of course, in the aftermath of those seven years, we've had the Trump uh, era. Uh, we've also had Russia rearming itself massively and uh, and coming out with this, what looked initially like a, uh, a potent new military. Um, and it's fairly clear that there's no possibility for Russia to be able to occupy all of Ukraine uh, it could certainly install a puppet regime and have local security forces, uh, you know, in order to uh, uphold that. Um, but, uh, you know, it, uh, it can't take and occupy Ukraine should it, even should it wants to. What this is about is effectively Putin trying to re-establish the footprint in terms of access uh, to, you know, the, the, the old territory, I think, of the USSR, certainly not its ideological makeup. Uh, but the geopolitical footprint, which is ironic, because uh, you know he protests that he's exceptionally, uh, exceptionally nervous about NATO expansion, and yet it's actions he's taken that uh, that are nuzzling up against NATO. Ukraine itself, of course, isn't a NATO member, and NATO membership wasn't wasn't ever on the cards. Uh, but it borders four NATO countries, so it's interesting that that you know he, he seems to want to get closer to it. The challenge is, I think, for the West is, you know, if you do nothing about this, if you basically let him have his way, then what next, right? Uh, you know, will it be Estonia? Will it be Latvia? Will it be Lithuania? Um, you know, are the Poles going to be told in a few years that they don't deserve to exist as a sovereign state or they don't exist as a people? Um, so I think, you know, this is ultimately something that forces one of the big questions about European security that we've been asking since you know, sort of 1991, which is, you know, where does Russia fit and does it? And I think probably the answer at the moment, at least sadly, is no. Matt, you talked about the role of a political agreement, settlement uh, between Ukraine, obviously, uh, backed by the West and Russia. Where do you think that lands? I mean, obviously, there's so much to play out, as you also flagged. But if it does come to a position where there is a political settlement between Ukraine and, and Russia, what's likely to be the broad frame of that? Uh, look, I think it'll probably take some form of the further division of Ukraine. Um I can't see anything else that will take Putin. 
but I don't necessarily think that's uh, going to be acceptable to Zelensky. Uh, so, unfortunately, with these types of conflicts, both sides have to incur more losses and both sides have to, you know, uh, become aware of the, uh, the realities of the situation before they then actually come to the negotiating table. Um, it's unlikely, I think, that Donbass uh, will go back to Ukrainian control. Um, it's unlikely that Crimea, well, certainly not the case, I don't think at all, that Crimea will go back to Ukrainian control. It may be that Zelensky will have to cede more territory uh, or perhaps institute something like a, uh, you know, a demilitarised zone um, with various security assurances, uh, pledge not to join NATO, um, you know, for, for a period of 20 years or something like that. Uh, but that's speculation. Some form of, of the division partition, further partition of Ukraine will ultimately, I think, be the result of this. And on the flip side of that, you ended your piece in the conversation last week by writing that Russian behaviour needs to come with significant costs. What exactly does that mean to you as of Monday, 7th of March, 2022? Uh, well, I think it's how it come with significant costs financially for the Russian population. The fact that interest rates have gone from 9.5% to 20% overnight is pretty significant. Um, the fact that, you know, Russians won't be able to pay for things except with cash is pretty significant and, uh, you know, sets the stage for, for hyperinflation. Uh, beyond that, I think we have to be quite careful um, in um, delinking the Putin regime in Russia from Russian people. Uh, there are plenty of Russians who support this war, uh, but there are plenty of them who are apathetic. Uh, and those who are apathetic, I don't think at all, are, are you know, the adversaries of the West. Um, uh, I think they deserve you know, respect and understanding. Um, it's, it's those of the those in the Kremlin, those who have enabled this bizarre, you know, ultra-nationalist discourse that somehow Ukrainians are all Nazis, you know, and they're in league with, uh, you know, they're in league with NATO. And of course, if you're the head of the Orthodox Church, apparently, also the Ukrainians uh, are going to turn Russia gay. Um, you know, those who enable this type of discourse are the ones that, that need to feel the majority of the pain. But unfortunately, the, the, the rest of the Russian population will too. Uh, that's just the nature of sanctions. Some of them are targeted, some of them aren't. So uh, I think, you know, ultimately this is a wake-up call for the West, but the West has now realised that while Putin or anyone who, you know, is part of his ilk uh, is, is present uh, in the leadership within Russia, then there's no real place for uh, Russia in you know, the, uh, the security order of Europe uh, until it can learn to play nicely with its neighbours. Matt, I think that's a really important note to end the interview on. Thank you so much for your time this morning, your analysis, and we'll upload the article that you wrote for the conversation uh, onto our page on 3CR Monday Breakfast website and hope that you have a, a really good day, a busy one, I'm guessing, all the same. Always busy. Thanks so much, Evan. Thanks so much, Matt. Appreciate it. That was Matt Sussex. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast, where it's 8.03am. Join 3CR for a day of special programming in celebration of International Women's Day on Tuesday the 8th of March. With a stellar lineup featuring 24 hours of international current affairs, music, 
arts, activism, culture and much, much more. This is a unique broadcast that you won't hear anywhere else. We'll bring you the usual celebration of non-conforming feminism. No leadership breakfast here. Just 24 hours of grassroots radical discussions by women and gender non-conforming presenters, producers and musicians dismantling the patriarchy, taking collective action and imagining the future of feminism. This year's celebrations include a street party in the lane alongside 3CR from 4pm to 8pm in Little Victoria Street. There'll going? be music, performers, food um, well and friends. Done, so ready to go to Can't make it? You can also listen live. This is a COVID safe event. So join 3CR in celebrating the amazing women and gender non-conforming people in your community from midnight Monday the 7th of March until midnight on Tuesday the 8th of March. For full details, head to the website 3cr.org.au slash IWD2022. This is 3CR Breakfast. Evan Wallace is my name. You just heard an interview there with Matthew Sussex talking about situation in Ukraine. That interview will be available on our website on 3CR Monday Breakfast. We started the year with the federal Liberal National Government attempting to characterise Anthony Albanese and the Labour Party as being too close to China, with the Russian invasion of Ukraine dominating local and international news. Seems that this line of attack has been somewhat parked. So where does this leave the debate between the two parties? And with a federal election expected in May, how will national security feature on the campaign trail? Are we likely to see much daylight between the coalition and the Labour Party? Party. Joining us this morning to answer some of these questions is Professor Mark Kenny. Mark is a professor at the Australian Studies Institute at ANU and former chief political correspondent and national affairs editor for The Age, Sydney Morning Herald and The Canberra Times. Thank you so much for being here this morning, Mark. Pleasure to talk to you, Evan. Mark, you're a close follower of world affairs and covered key moments in international relations. How significant do you think these past few weeks have been in world politics? Oh, they've been uh, absolutely seismic, Evan. There's no question about that. Um, I was just thinking about, and we'll probably come to uh, this submarine announcement that's happening today, but just thinking about the uh, you know the point you're making, really, in terms of national security, how it's come to the fore and it, what that means for the election, what it means for Scott Morrison's chances, bearing in mind that he's trailing at the polls pretty badly at the moment. And it's pretty hard to imagine national security not being a significant factor. Um, and whilst Morrison is going to be criticised from the left uh, for, you know, basically, you know, very nakedly politicising the whole national security question, whilst that's probably true... On the other hand, uh, how can he not? Um, because this is a very significant event. What's happening in the Ukraine at the moment is uh, is unprecedented, uh, certainly in our lifetimes. And uh, people are describing the exodus of Ukrainian refugees as the, the worst refugee crisis um, Europe has faced since the Second World War. We've had Vladimir Putin, the, uh, the Tsar of Russia these days, um, as he sort of sees himself uh, threatening... Uh, nuclear uh, strike in some form, you know, certainly uh, sabre-rattling in that regard. And, and some analysts and close watchers of Putin think that's not just hollow rhetoric, that he's, he's, um, he's mad enough to do it. 
Uh, and of course, China's giving some sucker to to Russia at the moment, refusing to condemn the Russian invasion of Ukraine and uh, uh, buying uh, oil and gas and coal from from Russia, so giving it vital uh, uh, foreign capital. So. You know, there, there, there are a lot of things happening here and uh, it's, it, it can no way be described as insignificant. There is so, so much happening and it's really, there is just an absolute cacophony of, of moving parts that are there. Before diving too much into the politics and how it will play out in an Australian context, just want to ask you a personal question, Mark. You've covered a lot of international developments from a lot of different parts of the world, including places such as Kandahar. For you individually, how gut-wrenching is it seeing the situation in Ukraine unfold? Uh, look, I, I'd certainly admit that I've, I found this quite depressing. Um, I think Australians have, have had a, a pretty tough couple of weeks, really, when we think about the, the lead-up to this and the horrible reality of it, all the the, the kind of um, uh, the anticipation of the possibility of an invasion, which, you know, I suppose gave us some sense of what was going to happen, but many people believed it wasn't going to happen. Indeed, people in Kiev and, and other cities in the Ukraine thought it wasn't going to happen right up until the time that the that the troops and tanks rolled across the, the Russian-Ukraine border. Um, so there's that side of it. And, of course, we've also had these devastating floods and uh, storms up, up down the east coast. Uh, so it's a pretty tough time at the moment. But looking at, you know, watching, I've been watching particularly SBS News, and I'd want to give a shout out to uh, to SBS's international news coverage. It's been so good, um, and obviously focused very heavily on Ukraine. And um, you just see these harrowing personal stories, and you know that for every story you see covered like that, there are thousands upon thousands more are equally or, or even worse, more gut-wrenching. So it's it's a terrible thing to, to witness and really very sad, I think, to think that we, you know, we, we all, I think, suffer from this uh, delusion, um, you know, happy delusion for the most part, that, that humanity is making progress, that we saw after the Second World War a settlement of these things. We saw the creation of the United Nations. We saw the unification of Europe. We saw the creation eventually of the European Union and uh, and, and and the cooperation that is associated with that. And we saw the growth of, of peaceful democracies, international trade, you know, inter- integrated uh, economies internationally. And all of these things, I think, have you know, led us to believe that we were on a on a path, that there was a sort of a... a, a um, a trajectory to this, a direction to it, which was uh, in, in terms of a, a social and political advance. But these events really remind us that in the end, brute force and uh, autocratic uh, players such as uh, Vladimir Putin can upend the world order in a very short time. And, uh, and that brute force can be used really very capriciously and quite quickly. And uh, suddenly all of those customs and rules and expectations we had about um, about respect for other nations and respect respect for process they don't matter a jot once once the shooting starts and it's uh, yeah a little bit depressing I have to admit uh, sadly I think that's a, a really accurate description of where world politics is at at the moment and we could say that the end of history thesis has been very much defeated and what else on that front? We know, too, that the number of liberal democracies over the last 10 years, it's on the decline, which is a, 
Yeah, a really sobering fact uh, to, to reflect on the rise of authoritarianism in the world and, and that playing itself out on so many different levels that you flagged at the start of uh, the interview. And we see different parts of the world very, very much at loggerheads with one another. It wasn't that long ago that we had the federal government um, standing on the largest possible soapbox uh, that it could find trying to tie and pin the Labour Party as being too close to, to China. And um, anti-China rhetoric again um, uh, featuring um uh, well, whether it's anti-China rhetoric, that may be a, a biased way of describing it, but um, I suppose a a, lie, a narrative and um, and uh, um, I suppose a, a doctrine that's emerging, which is very China-centric and focused on um, the risks that are attached to China's role and march on the the world international stage. So, just casting our mind back to those those few weeks ago. Um, feels like somewhat that line of attack's been dropped with um, oh yeah, that focus now on Ukraine, that China and Australia's relationship with it, somewhat in, in, well, somewhat in the background, although changed this morning by submarine announcement. What are you making, what do you make, Marcus, to where everything's at right now with respect to how the federal government tries to position China and, its, and our relationship with China as an issue at this year's election? Yeah, it's a good point. I'm glad you mentioned the end of history thesis as well, because that was, in fact, in my mind in my previous answer, and uh, you quite rightly picked up on that, um, you know, the whole notion that uh, we'd sort of got to some rational point in terms of human organisation and and uh, and that this was, therefore, the you know, the end of the great battle between uh, the big meta-narratives of, uh, you know, theocracy or, 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 or autocracy, communist state communism, uh, and we finally got to this point where liberal democracies were dominant. We now see that liberal democracies on the decline, as you say, and that some liberal democracies, not just in number but in quality, so a lot of liberal democracies have actually gone backwards in terms of their, um, you know, the strength and robustness of their democracies. Going to your um, your point about China, yes, it's true. The focus is is very much on Russia, as as you'd expect in this circumstance, and the, you know these explicit threats of. You know, of a nuclear possibility, with Putin putting uh, putting forces on some special level of readiness, whatever that exactly means. Um, but I think the government's always viewing this as, um, as as both a security crisis in its own right, but also as a proxy for the debate about uh, about China in our region. Of course, China's much closer to Australia than than Russia is, uh, and uh, it has. Uh, you know, regional, uh, very, very strong regional significance here. We know the American troops are uh, stationed in in, um, in Northern Territory, for example, as a, um, a direct function of America's recognition that China is an increasingly big player in this region. We've seen the, the step up, uh, which is a strategy of trying to carry more influence with our Pacific neighbours, all the smaller Pacific nations, because we know China's been making a play there. And I think in the election itself or in this lead-up period to the election, because we are really in a, an election campaign now, let's be honest about it. Uh, it hasn't been called yet, but uh, both sides are behaving uh, as if we are in, in an election campaign. And I think whilst China won't necessarily always be explicitly mentioned, it is sitting behind all the time what the government is doing. And I think it will get quite a lot of explicit mention anyway because the government is quite desperate, uh, quite desperate to have Australians 
concerned about what China's intentions are in Taiwan, uh, what its intentions are in the South and East China Seas. Will there be uh, any moves made by Beijing to take advantage of the attention the world is placing uh, in, in Europe um, or, or to uh, simply, um, you know, simply enact the policies that it's been uh, planning for a while? Um, and, you know, what will Australia's response to that be? What will the US's response be? Uh, these are these are concerns that I think the government's going to be ratcheting up for a um, for a uh, you know a heightened national security atmosphere in the election. And uh, you know it's not all it's not all fiction here. This is uh, these are legitimate concerns. And I think there is some uh, you know, some degree of uh, concern, perhaps even regret or sadness that. China was faced, in, in respect of Putin's uh, move on Ukraine, China was faced with a situation where it could have spoken more strongly in defence of the rules-based order, even though it's been a critic of the rules-based order to the extent that it believes some of the architecture of the rules-based order, particularly the World Trade Organization, perhaps the G7, ought to be changed, the rules ought to be changed to accommodate China's emergence. And I think it has a case, China has a case that... Um, you can't expect it to buy in completely to the rules-based order when it was really closed out of a number of those uh, those institutions. But instead, China just seems to have uh, sided with Russia at this stage. And what Russia's done is patently illegal, patently unconscionable. There are war crimes being committed, and China could be much more robust and forthright in criticising that, but we don't see that. And I think that's a pretty worrying development, and it does play into... Uh, the government's sabre-rattling about China, the government's kind of, um, you know, fear-mongering. You'd see it in the the final weeks of uh, the the last sitting of Parliament that, uh, you know, everything that was happening in Russia was being viewed uh, at least partly through this China lens, and I expect that to continue right up to the election. So with that backdrop at play, how much difference do you think we're likely to see between the main two political parties at this year's election with respect to international politics and national security? Do you think it's going to be very much a, uh, a bipartisan approach that will be in place or can, could we see some divergence from the Labor Party in terms of what it voices at this year's federal election with respect to, say, relations with China or how Australia should be positioning itself in respect to the international debate? I don't think there'll be a great deal of difference. In fact, perhaps there won't be any difference between what the government does and what the opposition says, partly because the opposition takes the view that the government is the government and it makes policy, particularly foreign policy and strategic policy, rather than the opposition. But also because there is a huge political risk in even relatively small difference because the government will exploit that, try and argue that uh, Labor is soft on China, but Labor doesn't have the, the metal or the, or, the, or the ticker, as they say in politics, for really strong national security policy, that, that this is the strength of the coalition as the coalition sees it. And, uh, and Labor would equivocate at critical moments that Labor would be too weak. So I think Labor is um, uh, going to be standing as close to the government as possible. There'll be no social distancing there on the, um, on the, uh, on the policy front of national security, one would imagine. Of course, the, the risk for Labor is that as the government becomes more and more bellicose about it, trying to establish that market differentiation, trying to establish that it is stronger, that there is a difference, 
that the, the, the government becomes, you know, more hawkish. And uh, Labor, is, if it's committed to standing with, you know, if Albanese is committed to standing shoulder to shoulder with uh, with Tutton and Morrison, then he's going to be responsible for the same kind of rhetoric. Having said that, as I say, um, one of the lessons from 2019 uh, that Labor has learned the hard way is that you can't... Re- there's a limit to what you can propose in terms of change from opposition. It's hard enough changing the, the, you know, getting Australians to change the government, but trying to change the country and the government at the same time from opposition is a big ask. And arguably, that's what Labor tried to do in 2019 with, you know, a very large policy suite. And uh, Morrison picked them off for it. And he, he he's good at this. You know, Morrison is a good campaigner and he's, he's good at marketing and he understands message uh, discipline and all those sorts of things all the dark arts of politics, you might say. And, uh, you know, I expect that uh, he'll, he'll put in a very strong campaign. And we see with this announcement that's coming later today, $10 billion for this new submarine base on the East Coast. Um, you know, this is ahead of an announcement uh, to buy eight nuclear-powered submarines from either Britain or the US. And that announcement will probably come before the election as well, which is, you know, another naked politicisation of national security. But there it is. So it's a it's a perilous area, and I think Labor will just be trying to minimise any difference it has with the government, so that it can keep the focus on on domestic issues like unemployment, rising interest rates, uh, uh, you know, job insecurity, inadequate health spending, the PM's character, the you know the, the sort of litany of corruption st- stories that have come up around the government over a long period of time. So yeah, it looks like being a pretty brutal sort of uh, pre-election period. And. Finally, Mark, amongst all of this, oh, all of this sound and all of this noise and concern about what's happening in the world from a security front, we still have a pandemic that's raging. Do you think there's going to be any space for COVID-19 and different responses, say, for instance, within health systems and how Australia continues to respond to an ongoing pandemic to feature much over the next um, number of months when it comes to debate and or discussion? Or is your read that uh, the yeah the narrative right now is just going to be overtaken by uh, security fears. Well, I think security fears and the economy. I don't think the economy is going to go away. All elections are are, are about the economy and uh, how people are feeling, whether they feel secure in their jobs, whether they can afford their houses, uh, whether they can you know whether there are hospitals. There's an election going on in South Australia at the moment, a state election, and uh, you know the issue of ramping of of uh, uh, ambulances being sort of um, stuck on on hospital ramps, uh, waiting to uh, offload uh, patients, and not being able to actually then respond to emergencies because they've still got someone in the ambient ambulance and and all of that. That's that's you know th- those sort of health concerns and funding concerns for basic services, particularly at state level, but also nationally, will be strong factors in the election. But the the pandemic, you're right. The pandemic does feel like it's kind of really gone off the front pages. And probably rightly so in a sense. I mean, one of the things that's really interesting about the arrival of Omicron is that, um, and I remember reading this, you know, like literally right when it started, which was this very, you know, right at the start of December of last year. Um, I remember reading that on the on the plus side, there was a chance that Omicron being a dominant variant of the virus would crowd out um, Delta and, and other variants, that it might uh, it might be our ticket to the end of the pandemic, or at least functionally to the end of it being a um, sort of a health emergency. Um, it may be endemic after that, but not necessarily pandemic. And I think 
Um, whilst we had a terrible summer and we've had uh, an appalling death toll and the government has mismanaged it and, and failed to understand what was about to happen even when you could see it happening in sort of real time, I think the pandemic now does feel like the, the crisis has passed. There could be, of course, other variants that emerge and really bring it back onto the front page, which particularly if uh, it turns out that vaccinations are, are even less effective or waning quickly and we, you know, we have the crisis again blowing up as we go into winter. But, um, but generally speaking, I think there's some reason for optimism and uh, perhaps one of the few happy things we can say is that there's at least the prospect that the worst days of the pandemic are behind us. Mark, appreciate you coming on the show this morning. Thank you so much for your analysis and hope that you have a really good day and week ahead. Uh, thanks. Always a pleasure, uh, Evan, to talk to you and uh, talk to you again sometime. That was Mark Kenny. You're listening to 3CR Breakfast. our Monday breakfast, where we're fast coming to the end of the show. Evan Wallace is my name. Just heard interviews with Mark Kenny, Matthew Sussex, and before that, Tamusa Hill. All of that information that we've covered off today will be available on our website, 3cr.org.au. Great to have your company. Two weeks ago, we reported that the koala had been classified as endangered in Queensland, New South Wales, and the ACT, with the Australian Koala Foundation estimating that there will be as few as 43,000 koalas remaining in the environment. Joining us to talk about how we reached this situation and what we should be doing to save this iconic animal is Australian Conservation Foundation Healthy Ecosystems campaigner Jess Abrahams. Good morning, Jess. Morning, Evan. How are you? Really well, thank you. Jess, often on this show I'm asking my guests to describe animals that are endangered but probably listeners haven't heard of. It's safe to assume that everyone knows the koala. So I'm going to start by asking you, what do you love about this marsupial? Uh, Evan, i Definitely the fur, the ears, the, you know, cuddly appearance, even though they have big sharp claws and they're actually not so nice to cuddle. But, um, you know, they're this iconic Australian animal that, you know, is known globally as, you know, the icon of Australia, perhaps alongside the kangaroo. And um, unbelievably, we had this news that's obviously, you know, the writing's been on the wall for a long time now, that uh, koalas are now officially endangered. So how did the koala find itself in this dreadful situation? Well, um, historically, of course, um, you know, koalas were once incredibly abundant in Australia. And what few people don't realise is that koalas were actually hunted for their fur um, in the millions. Millions and millions of koalas were hunted historically. Um, Of course, that came to an end. um, And koala populations across the east coast of Australia, which is their range, were somewhat stable. But the ongoing pressure on their habitat 
and that's from logging, from mining, from urban sprawl, from roads, from all of these human pressures have been shrinking their habitat. And at the end of the day, if wildlife don't have where, anywhere to live, if they don't have habitat, if they don't have places to sleep, places to feed, um, the resources, the genetic resources they need, um, they just can't survive. And that's what's been happening to our koalas. We've been hacking away at their homes. And um, tragically, probably what's really pushed them over the edge in this last period is the extreme bushfires we're now experiencing. And of course, we know, you know what's aggravating this situation with climate change. Why is the situation so much worse in, in New South Wales and, and Queensland and also the ACT, where they have been specifically listed as being endangered? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, koala populations have only uh, endangered only in those three states you mentioned, Queensland, New South Wales, mm-hmm. ACT. Um, there are populations in Victoria and um, smaller populations in South Australia. Um, koalas were introduced to parts of Victoria, like Phillip Island, where they're now in perhaps overabundance and they're suffering a lack of genetic diversity. So weirdly, in some parts of Australia, we have an abundance of koalas, but in the the dominant part of their range, um, they are disappearing and it's because of habitat destruction. Of course, there's been habitat destruction in Victoria, but they've also been moved to places where their habitat is secure, also down in the Otways, um, and their numbers are high there, but they're also facing different kinds of pressures there. So tell me about what steps you would like to see being taken to save this incredibly special animal. Well, look, there's something, uh, there's two very simple things we can do. And we, we have known all along that habitat destruction is one of the key drivers of extinction. And despite this knowledge being told to governments uh, time and time again in numerous reports from scientists and state of the environment reports, Governments are continuing to approve the destruction of their habitat and we unveiled some new research just a couple of weeks ago that showed over a 10-year period the um, Australian government has approved the destruction of 25,000 hectares of their habitat. That's something like um, 50,000, you know, average house blocks. So we've got to stop destroying their habitat. Um, We know that that is causing the death of koalas and if we're going to continue to knock down their homes, koalas will disappear. So that's the one big thing. We have to protect their habitat. The other factor, of course, in this is climate change. It's not just the extreme bushfires we're seeing, which, of course, are destroying their habitat. It's also heat waves. And interestingly, um, a reduction in nutrients of the leaves of the eucalypt trees they eat is also one of the consequences of climate change um, that koalas are facing. So climate change really compounds all of the existing pressures these incredible animals are facing. Of course, there's also other threats like car strike and, and um, dog attack and, and um, disease. But it's those two big ones, habitat loss. We have to stop that. We have to protect the habitat and climate change. We have to take serious action, urgent action on climate change um, if we're going to reduce the pressures and, and have a chance of making sure that our grandchildren can enjoy these incredibly cute um, animals in the wild as we have. And Jess, just very quickly, because we're over time now, if people want to get behind ACF's campaign to save the koala, where can they go? Look, anywhere on ACF's website, acf.org.au, you can learn about koalas, but also, importantly, the strong national environment laws that we need that will protect their habitat and the action on climate change we need to reduce emissions and uh, make sure that we can get climate change under control and give creatures like our koalas a fighting chance. 
Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show. Sorry it was such a short conversation and looking forward to having you again in the future. Great, Evan. Thanks so much, Jess. 3CR Breakfast, it's been a pleasure having your company. Evan Wallace is my name. The show will be up online, 3cr.org.au. Have a great week and we'll catch you next time. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.